Welcome to The Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello and welcome to The Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you're a returning subscriber, hey, how's it going? Great to see you again. Uh, see what happens when you subscribe to The Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every episode. I am here with the Bianca Ford, former federal prosecutor, um, compliance leader uh, to the stars. And so... Uh, ready to jump in here and hear about your interesting background and what you bring to the table, because I think you have a lot of uh, really interesting perspectives. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're a former federal prosecutor, but before that, you were a litigator. Um, yes. I always I love having litigators on the show because you guys really have a unique skill set that I think. Um, I think it's a unique skill set because you have to get really good at a lot of different things. You have to get good at getting smart at things quickly. And then yeah. I see, as I talk to more and more litigators, like it just lends itself to so many, like so many different types of experiences. Sure. What was it about in law? What, when you were, you know, I'd love to hear about when, you know, what made you want to go into law school, but like when you were in law school, trying to pick your direction, how soon did you know that litigation was for you? And what was it about it that really attracted you to it? Yeah, great question. So I'm one of those people who can honestly say I knew I wanted to be a lawyer when I was six. Um, I was sort of an outspoken child and my grandmother did the benefit, gave me the benefit of saying to me, hey, you should, you should be a lawyer. You always have something to say. You always have an argument that you want to make. Mm -hmm. um, so I, it kind of stuck with me. I did think about other opportunities, other career paths when I got to high school, but I, I just came back to law. And when I got to law school, um, you know, I, I think I hadn't had experience to anyone who had practiced and practiced in a large firm environment. Most of the context that I had for what lawyers did was trial work. I was a big fan of Law and Order. I grew up watching Perry Mason and Matlock. Um, so trial work and litigation was what I knew. Um, it wasn't until my, I, I, I'd say my first summer, um, I summered after my second year, I summered at um, the now no more. <laughs> May it rest in peace, Dewey Valentine. Um, and during that experience, I I was able to have some corporate exposure and litigation exposure. But you know, growing up, advocacy was always just a part of who I was. So it didn't take a really long time for me to realize that I wasn't really interested in like contractual negotiations. I really wanted to advocate. Um, and any space that allows me to use that skill set as a skill is a space that makes me happy. Um, so that's part of that's part of what led me to leave big law and and go to the a, a U.S. Attorney's Office. I'd met so many former federal prosecutors who just described the role as the best job they'd ever had. Um, I knew I wanted more autonomy. I, I knew I had this gift for advocacy that I felt was largely being underutilized. I was at this space in my career where I was writing opening statements and closings and direct examinations and having to listen to someone else um, deliver them. And I, I'd usually sit there thinking, it's not, it's not the way that I meant for it to be to, to be said, right? <laughs> um, and then there's this whole attraction to this thing called doing justice, right? That I, after a while you learn, can be very relative depending on, yeah. on who's delivering it. Um, but for those reasons, I went into prosecution um, and then I left prosecution in 2020 um, to join my current company. So you had this sort of desire, let's rewind back to, uh, I'm just kind of picturing you as a seven-year-old arguing and, you know, picturing yourself as a lawyer one day. Um, I love talking to people who have had that dream since they're young because their path is, we're, we're all on a very winding path, of course, but like the path is sort of more, more direct and, it, uh, and I'd like to, I'd like to hear a little bit about how that sort of goal, the clarity of that goal from such a young age allowed you to sort of 
not sort of waste time and be more sort of purposeful on your journey? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, for one, I wasn't thinking about a gap year. <laughs> you got to get moving. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, for high school, I guess it wasn't that big of a deal, except it was, I need to get this done because I got to go to college and I got to go to law school. I just knew what my trajectory was, whatever mm -hmm. the distractions were that were outside um, that could have been otherwise sort of uh, captivating and were captivating for some of my peers. They weren't really captivating for me because I had, I knew what my vision was. I knew where I wanted to end up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, I, I, I'd say, you know, back then, if you said you wanted to be a lawyer, everyone said, okay, go major in political science. Obviously that's not true. You can major in whatever you want. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, um, the guidance that I got was major in political science. So I did that, minored in African-American studies. So again, you know, I was in college pretty focused on this path of law, majoring in poli-sci, taking courses related to, to, to that space. Um, and then when I got to law school, it was almost like, this is what I've been waiting for. You know, um, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the reading. I loved changing, learning a new lexicon. I loved just learning how to think like a lawyer. Um, I think most people who go to law school will tell you that at least for the full first year, maybe longer, you're literally just speaking in all these new legal words, <laughs> using these legal phrases that you've learned. And none of your friends who aren't in law school or aren't lawyers want to talk to you because you're <laughs> having so much fun with this new vocabulary. So for me, law school was just, it was kind of where it, it just made so much sense. I, I loved everything about it. Can you imagine if you got there and you were like, oh my gosh, this is not what I was expecting. I mean, it's so refreshing to probably to have had this sort of dream about getting to the promised land and you cross the Jordan and you land there and you're like, this is it. This is perfect for me. How, how, you know, tell me about how that felt to that, that like reinforcement. Cause I'm sure there were some sort of uh, anxieties or maybe not, I don't know. Were there some anxieties before you got in and how quickly did that sort of, how quickly did like the, the glove fit? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, you know, I guess there's always anxiety around testing. Okay, I got to take this LSAT. I got to do well. I got to yeah. get into a good school. Um, and then you get to law school. And again, no lawyers in my family. I, I didn't have um, a lot of the insights that some of my peers had in terms of how important the first year was. Luckily, I learned that pretty early. So you get there and then that anxiety builds. I had to do so well my first year. You learn that these large firms exist and how competitive they are and you have to make yourself marketable for them. Right. Um, so you have to be a part of this and that organization and make sure your grades stay up. So, you know, those pressures were there, um, but I got so much satisfaction out of what I was learning and what I was gaining and what I knew my end goal was that it just kept me grounded and kept me focused. I was able to um, still make friends and and um, two of my friends became my study, my study partners. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in touch with them to this day and we held each other accountable. Um, we challenged each other, we learned from each other. Um, so, you know, law school was just a fantastic space for me. I, I, I ended up joining Moot Court, joining a journal. Um, really, I think Moot Court was where I really affirmed this desire to be an advocate. And I learned at that time, hey, Bianca, you might be nervous when you step up, step up to this podium, but no one knows unless you let them know, right? Yeah. So, that's yeah. a big lesson, isn't it? Yeah, it's a huge lesson. And I take that with me now in, in every space um, where I, I have to speak publicly um, uh, in any capacity. So you've said advocacy a couple of times so far. Talk to me about, I'd love to hear what is it about it? Because most advocates that I hear um, or most advocates that I, I talk to, it's like they feel like it's a duty. 
And mm. so maybe um, talk to me about what is it about advocacy that has like rested on your heart for so long? And what is it like, what angle and what kind, kind of an impact do you seek to have sort of on a micro and just even on like a macro level? Yeah, yeah. So for me, I think it's the, there's a, there's a rush to it. There's like an adrenaline to it that I discovered the first time I ever um, had the opportunity to speak in court. Um, and it, it, it continued when I was a prosecutor and I got to stand up in front of juries. It's something about, especially trial work, because trial work, mm -hmm. oftentimes you have the big picture. You step into a courtroom. Um, the judge has learned a lot over the course of the time that a case was pending, but the jury knows nothing. Right. And you have this complicated matter generally, and it you have to present it in a, in a number of different types of puzzle pieces. And then ultimately you get to bring it all together. And there's something about that, that I, I really got enjoyment from and really just, um, you know, it, it was really like an adrenaline rush. I loved to be in, in, in front of juries. I loved, I loved um, opening statements, closings. I, I, I love everything about it. Um, and one of the things that um, my current role allows me to do, even though I'm in-house, I'm you know, now a global compliance executive leading uh, compliance and ethics for North and South America, you know, I still get to be an advocate. Um, I still get to take you know, whatever my vision of what this ought to be as a, as a, as a leader of a function, um, use data to support what it is that, that you know, I believe we ought to do. And I get to present that to leaders. I get to seek buy-in from leaders um, and, and just bring them in to, to what I'm thinking and help them understand the why. Um, so so if there's something about that. It's, it's a really good question. I don't think I've ever thought about why advocacy is so important to me, but I know that it's a space, if I don't get to use that piece of my, of my personality, I wouldn't be fulfilled in any role. And then on a macro level, you know, I do a lot of speaking and teaching when it comes to the role of prosecutors and how they can inject equity into the criminal legal system. Um, I co-founded an app regarding um, racial pay equity because so much of the racial pay gap is misunderstood. Yeah. Um, as a community, as a society, we focus on the gender pay gap, which we should, um, but there's, there's so much also racial inequity in pay that, that, that isn't as well researched. Um, so, you know, my advocate in a macro level um, goes into those spaces, my advocacy on a, on a macro level. So there's like 30 different things I want to ask you right now. So um, <laughs> the, um, the prosecution thing, and um, that is super interesting. And I always love, um, I mean, so much of our lives is persuasion. Right. You're trying to I mean, when you're talking to a jury, I can just sort of imagine, well, I guess I've seen a bunch of uh, courtroom dramas, but like <laughs> you don't know these people. You can kind of assess at some level maybe where they come from or you can make assumptions. But bottom line, it's a diverse group of different minds and hearts and experiences that you're trying to persuade and trying to pull this to your point, this sort of really complex story and grab the right pieces that are going to resonate and make the arguments and so forth that are going to resonate to get the outcome you want. Really? Like that's a very sort of contained, self-contained type of exercise, right? Like you're in a courtroom, there's a process and all that kind of stuff, but it lends itself and it's such like a dojo for like a martial art or something that you can bring <laughs> out, out into the streets and bring into your work and, and, and so forth. And, you know, um, maybe, in a, maybe in another life, if I don't come back as a butterfly, I'll come back as a prosecutor or something <laughs> because, or as a litigator of some sort, because like, I just love the game. And um, I just see that, that that experience just lends itself so well to like driving change right whether it's driving change in an organization 
or I'm sure you can drive change in your family pretty well. You can make good arguments <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Maybe your grandma was right about you as a seven-year-old. Um, but what I see is so much of the ethics and compliance game is about persuading, right? We have to persuade our leaders to give us the budget we need, or we have to persuade other people in other parts of the organization because we might not have the explicit power uh, to do what we want them to do. And at, an, at a sort of a really high level, we're trying to persuade a group of people in our organization, our teammates, employees, whatever, to act ethically on a day-to-day -day basis. If you could, at a high level, talk about how you're able to pull some of those things and put those into practice as you stepped from, you know, as you, as you kind of stepped in-house into this sort of global compliance role. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of the way that I communicate um, and bring people in does stem from my experience in front of juries. And, and three of the things that really mattered in that space was one, helping them understand why they should care, um, keeping them engaged too, and um, three, making really complex things simple. So I utilize, I, I, pull, I draw on all of those things when I'm communicating with leadership. Um, so, you know, making, making people care, helping them understand why, how does it affect our company on a larger scale? Um, because, you know, ethics, ethics isn't a siloed function. Um, it's, right. so, it's so collaborative. And when it's at its best, it's, it's extremely cross-functional and collaborative. So many of the things that I've been able to achieve in this role um, and my, my former role um, is because I've been comfortable and excited um, to, to bring others in and rely on other skill sets and never think I know it all, right? Especially when you're new to a company, you have people who have been there for so long um, and they have so much institutional knowledge, they understand how things work and they also have their own expertise. And when you can incorporate that expertise into your ask, into what you need, um, into showing why something matters, it's so compelling. Um, and, you know, a lot of this doesn't matter if you're not working for a company that is not serious about ethics and compliance. I mean, that's the first thing. Like one right. of the reasons I joined my current company is because it was clear to me from the interview process that this was a company that was serious about doing business the right way, um, being a good global citizen, and also treating our people internally um, the way that, that we ought to, that, that makes people feel valued and creating a space of belonging, because belonging is part of ethics and compliance, right? Um, that, that broad culture is, is such a big part of making an ethics and compliance program successful. So, you know, just those realities and, and helping people understand, you know, the connection between things, you know, using data to do that, for instance, the connection between psychological safety and physical safety when you work in a company like the company I work for, which is, uh, there's a construction and manufacturing element, right? So we have a field force, we want to make sure people are safe. Their psychological safety is important to that. Um, and how do we create a culture relying on ethics and compliance tools, but also being collaborative uh, to do that? What was it that you saw during that process? Because I'm sure you had a bunch of options. You were looking at a bunch of diff different companies. What did you see during that process that you're like, okay, this is really it? Well, to be honest, I wasn't looking at um, that many different companies. I, I actually was really happy <laughs> in federal prosecution. Um, so, you know, it was the role that intrigued me. It was the mission of the company that intrigued me. And also when I, prior to getting promoted into um, leading ethics and compliance as a function for the Americas, I was leading global investigations. And when I transitioned into that space, I was working with a former federal prosecutor and two former FBI agents. So it was like this very seamless transition um, from, from my prior work, but it, gotcha. it was during the interview process and, and 
and understanding where the company was going. They had recently spun off from a parent um, and they were operating independently and solo for the first time and just helping to, to contribute to you know, building a compliance program that was not just focused on rules, but on culture. And that's what intrigued me. Yeah, that um, more and more companies are making that connection that it's not just yeah. a bunch of rules and policies and um, you know, uh, hotlines to call, but we're really talking about human beings. Why do you think it's taking companies so long to recognize that we're not in the industrial revolution anymore, even industrial companies, that we're not in the industrial revolution anymore and those structures that govern those spaces don't really work anymore? Why is it taking companies so long? It's a good question. I think that just as, sometimes people just get so focused on checking the box, right? Mm -hmm. You have, for instance, DOJ from time to time will issue guidance on what a, a, an effective corporate compliance program looks like. And people, you know, compliance leaders sometimes think if we check all these boxes and we have a working compliance program and, and focusing largely on some of the bigger ticket items that make companies really afraid, right? The, the bribery, the, the antitrust risk, um, but not recognizing the connection between culture and how that also impacts those big ticket right. risks. Um, so why is it taking so long? I, it's, a, it's a really good question. I think it's just a matter of, um, I think we're just transitioning in a big way as a society. Um, and I think companies are getting the point. You're seeing a lot more transparency. Um, you know, Uber just released a report prefaced with the fact that, you know, we don't love all this data, but we're going to embrace it and we're going to get better because we're embracing it. And it's just uh, culturally, as a, as, a, as a society, I think we're just moving in the space of, of transparency that, 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 is, that people are just gonna have to jump into and, and move along with. Do you think, where do you think the line is between this change being driven by a generational difference where people in our generation sort of see things a little bit differently versus a light bulb moment that's happening irrespective of generation, but it's just happening sort of at the higher echelons of power. I think part of it is a generational difference. I think one thing about, um, and I don't know, I think I'm on the cusp of the millennials. Right? We like to know why. Um, right. Don't tell me what to do. Help me understand the connection between what you're telling me to do and why it matters, the impact mm -hmm. that it's going to have. And I think that is, a, that is a big part of why the communication strategy for companies, not just in ethics and compliance, but in a lot of different functions has to change. But I also think, you know, when you have things like ESG that are becoming more prominent, you have leaders, um, you know, in the corporate space, like BlackRock, who are saying, hey, this is a big deal, um, and, make, and, and, and the SEC is starting to focus on it, yeah. right? Um, you have to sort of, you have to adapt, you have to change the way you do things, you have to do more than check a box. Uh, when those things become, when you become measured on your, the accuracy of your reporting based on those sorts of principles and those, those ideals, it, it requires a light bulb moment and a change. So I think it's a combination of things. Yeah, that's probably, a, that's probably right. I think that's a pretty good answer. Uh, so just know that I, think <laughs> that I like that. Okay. Um, but my friend, uh, listen to this, this is crazy. My friend um, it runs a company that's like a $500 million company and they were doing a refi of all their debt. And so they were shopping it around to a bunch of the big banks. And do you know every single bank was giving them uh, basis point reductions on their debt based on them hitting ESG metrics? Wow. That's what do you think about crazy. that? So yeah. we're gonna do a webinar on that because what an opportunity for ENC to, I mean, because so many people that we talk to, so many people that we talk to end up having a hard time sort of articulating what their value is to the broader organization, particularly in those types of organizations where these light bulb moments 
haven't sort of happened, which it seems like a lot of them have happened in the spot that you're at, which is phenomenal. There's a lot of people that are still sort of stuck in that sort of 19, you know, 90 style ENC program, and it's a necessary evil and it's a checkbox function right. stuff like that. Right. What a what a great opportunity to really show like, hey, this is not just a check the box thing. We can actually hit these numbers and directly reduce our cost of capital. I mean, that's that's nuts. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um you you know, a couple of other things I want to kind of circle around to before we um, move on to some other topics is, you know, you, you, you talked a lot about equity and you talked about um, the racial, um, the racial pay gap and that there really hasn't been as much like research done on that side of the pay gap discussion. It's really, I mean, any, anybody talks about pay gap, they're talking about the gender pay gap and stuff like that. Why has the racial pay gap, which I think is obviously there, why, why does that not get attention? And I mean, maybe I'm answering my own question, but uh, well, I'd love to hear what, what you think. What's, what's going on? You know, I think it's a combination of things. Um, I think that the, there are a lot of uh, complex matters because of the way that our society is structured, because of you know, systemic bias, systemic racism, um, structural racism it makes the matter a lot more complicated. And mm. I, I think that level of complication um, makes the research more difficult to do. I think as a general matter, we just haven't been focused on it, even though when you when the research is done, statistically, it's, it's demonstrably there, right? Like we know right. that last year, black women, for instance, had to work until August of, August of the year to make what men made um, in 2020, right? So from January 1, 2020 to August of 2021, that's when Black women caught up with what pre predominantly white men made in 2020. That's absurd. We know yeah. that over the course of, um, you know, it's predicted right now that the racial pay gap will persist for another 200 years. Is that acceptable? Jeez. Absolutely not. Um, there's there's so much that we can do about it. And, and um, you know, it's a big interest of mine. Um. Do you think that, so the bias is this really interesting thing um, that I've learned, I'm trying to learn more about. I just read this book, uh, this Daniel Kahneman book. That's the guy who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. And yeah. his new book is called Noise. Have you heard of this book? No. Super interesting. Um, so it's talking about noise in decision-making and um, a, they kind of frame out the book by talking about how, uh, how much noise there is in like sentencing in the court system. And how that changes on a racial basis, how it changes on like time of day. They've even statistically proven that like if a judge's home team, you know, on Sunday lost. Wow. Like, <laughs> I had not heard that. It's, it's insane. It's, it's wild. And so obviously bias exists. Obviously there's noise in our decision making. Um, and again, it kind of ties back to his first book, which is about these sort of two different systems that we as human beings use to make decisions. It's a system one and a system two. System one is our gut and our emotions. And then we have the system two that's all logical and it's the inputs and outputs. And I think we think we live in this system two uh, body, but it's really a system one body, which obviously where all this sort of bias resides. And so when we're talking about bias and we're talking about um, you know, pay gaps, whether they're gender-based or they're, uh, they're racial-based or whatever, we're fighting against sort of um, a bias that resides in sort of a part of us that people don't even like want to acknowledge that is actually steering the ship. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, so sure. why do you think, um, and I guess my question is when they're, why are men able to do um, like uh, gender pay gap analyses 
um, e like maybe easier than um, you know racial pay gap analyses because I think the bias resides at a deeper level. I think it's like I think the racial pay gap and like the anti-racism and the bias that comes with all of those kinds of things, it feels like it's more uh, difficult for people to like palette and like talk about. And I just wonder if you think there's some kind of an influence on that in why this piece of the pay gap discussion is like back in the corner. Because people don't want to recognize the history of our country, right? We see, we see it in the rejection of critical race theory learning um, in schools. And, you know, I think you see it in every space um, in terms of excuses that are made for why things happen a certain way. So, you know, as an example, in the criminal legal system, you say, you see statistics that will say, okay, 80% um, of the drivers that were uh, searched were black, right? Mm -hmm. um, in a city where 40% of people are black. And there are some people who will justify that and excuse that and say, well, that's because black people commit more crime. But is it because black people commit more crime or is it because of the way that we target communities that are um, low income and tend right. to be more minority occupied, right? Is it the way that we police those communities that um, result in people within those communities having more criminal contact, more criminal exposure. Um, because, you know, from a DC perspective, I live in Washington, DC, the way that the police operate in Ward 8, you know, Anacostia, Congress Heights is very different from the way they operate in Georgetown. Um, so, you know, when we, when we start to really embrace and recognize the way that just our history, the history of our country, um, the history of policing, the history of, of discrimination impacts every space, then we can start to be more um, honest, intellectually honest about how we're dealing with these things. And I don't, and as a, as a country, we're not there yet. And I think the so many different re recent events make that very clear. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting problem because we don't know sort of, I don't know, like, how do you fix it? Why, you know, are we spending too much time with like this attribution analysis on whether it exists or not? I mean, if you step outside and it's raining, you don't have to like debate that much about about it. Right. That's very clear. But it's like not clear for for a lot of people. And um, it just ends up like infecting so many different things. And, you know, I'm particularly interested in workplaces because I don't know, that's what my business is. That's what we kind of in ethics and compliance are trying to sort of fix on a, on a sort of a tangible direct level. And we frankly spend so much time at work, but you still see the same. I mean, I guess we're talking about the same thing at some level. You see the same sort of like infection sort of everywhere. Like how can we be advocates in our organization to fix these kinds of things in our little bubbles and our little corners of the world? And how does that lead to your vision of, you know, the future? Yeah, you know, I think corporations have a big role to play. One of the things is um, education. Um, when we become aware of our biases, we can interrupt them and we can mm -hmm. choose to do something different. Um, I used to have a bias for big dogs. I didn't realize it was a bias until I met my husband who has a Yorkie. And I originally- <laughs> You mean interest. literal dogs, okay, gotcha. Dogs, yeah. I, I had no interest in getting to know poor little Sammy because I was like, look at this little dog. I'm a Rottweiler girl, like get me a Rottweiler. Um, but that was a bias, right? It was, it was I, I, I was used to growing up with German Shepherds and Rottweilers. And that's a very simplistic way of just explaining that we, we do have these inherent biases that impact our judgment, impact the decisions that we make. We have affinity biases that draw us to people who are more like us, who sound like us, right? Mm -hmm. It might make us more resistant to um, putting someone with an accent on a project 
for instance, right? These things play out in so many different ways. So I think for corporations to begin educating, um, and there's so many different ways to do it. Uh, you know, my current company engaged an outside vendor to do these, these sort of mini trainings. Um, they were about maybe seven minutes at a time of learning um, in different components for a number of weeks at a time. And they, in a very um, simple, um, effective and streamlined way, describe the various different types of bias that exist, affinity bias, proximity bias, et cetera, um, just to bring it to your attention. So that as a leader, when you're, you're choosing teams, when you're um, ranking individuals, um, we talk about bias when we're, we're doing performance connections, right? We, totally. we do these biases just so people are aware and alert to them. And I think yeah. a big part of for any person in a, in a decision-making space, whether it's a doctor who's making a decision about a patient of color, right? Is something about your view of that patient impacting the decision that you're making, whether it's someone in a corporate space in the C-suite looking to promote someone, how are you, are you, are you completely aware of your biases as you're making that decision? Whether it's a police officer in a community that's predominantly um, black and brown, um, how is the way that you are interacting with this community influenced by your inherent biases? Are you are these biases being brought to your attention? Because people snub their nose so often at bias training. And, and you know, there's so many different types of bias training. Some are more effective than others. Um, but the reality is, if we don't, if we don't as a community, as a society, recognize the real impact that our biases have on every decision that we make, when especially when we're in the position to impact the life, the livelihood, yeah. the liberty, the health of another human being. Um, that's a dangerous space to be in. And I would hope that as ESG progresses, that social component of ESG will actually require companies to be more um, diligent and intentional about bias training, for example. Yeah, just being aware of them is interesting. You know, I was kind of struck by this thing. Um, you know, when somebody says like, oh, wow, they have an accent. It's like, well, everybody has an accent. Everybody has a bias, right? I mean, you have to know that you, that, that you have one for sure. Um, but it's just so hard to tune into them because I mean, I have bias for the people that I like more, you know, I, we like the same things or we like the same music and things like that. That should not sort of influence the objective decision that I make about somebody's promotion or, Absolutely. or, or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, it's a hard, it's a really hard game. It's a hard game to get right for myself. And it's a hard game to like for a company to get right. I think, um, doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't do it obviously, but, um, it's a really interesting area. What, what are you seeing in your teaching and in your education that you're doing? Because you, you said that, that you do a lot of education and a lot of sort of, you know, outside of work advocacy work, like what sort of top of mind and what, what battle are you engaged in right now? <laughs> pick um, one, so, you can pick, only pick one, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, I don't believe in fitting into a box. You know, I love my current work um, as a compliance executive. Um, so that's a battle I'm engaged in, right? How can I help us always um, how can I be conscious of, of what our data shows and how we're using it uh, to be better, to improve our culture, to improve our company, um, to, to keep us moving in, in, in the right direction from an ethics and compliance perspective? Um, you know, I will always have a, my, you know, there's once a prosecutor, always a prosecutor, <laughs> right? There's a, my heart is very much so aligned with how um, prosecution can be better and mm -hmm. really, you know, embrace use how prosecutorial discretion can be used to, to, to lead to more equitable criminal legal system outcomes. So that's a battle that 
Um, I'm engaged in to a degree, I wrote a book on it. So, you know, it's hard to, to walk away from it once you've done that. Uh, and then the, the pay equity piece is, 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 is newer, um, mm -hmm. in progress building. Um, but you know, I, I don't believe in fitting in a box. I think that when we have passions, they, they come into our heart for a reason. And our only, our, our only responsibility is to make time to see those things through, because I don't think it's a coincidence that our passions are our passions. That's an interesting um, way to think about it. Um, almost like the fates cast that desire on you and it's your sort of duty to, to run it down. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty powerful um, way to open yourself up to new opportunities and new, new change to you know, drive. Tell me a little bit about that book. That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, so um, it's called Prosecuted Prosecutor, a memoir and blueprint for prosecutor-led criminal justice reform. And it really is just about how um, you know, there's so much for one, there's a lot of criticism about the role of the prosecutor and all the bad things that prosecutors do, um, but not as much guidance, especially for line prosecutors. And by that, I, I mean the non-electeds, the non-appointed, um, the non-leaders of the office, the people who are on the line, so to speak, day to day, mm -hmm. going to trial, going to court, managing the cases. Um, there's less guidance for how the people at that level can impact equity in the system, um, especially if they're working in an environment where it's not progressive um, and, and those things are not significant to the leadership of their organization. So the book is really focused on that um, as well as the course that follows it. So, um, you know, that, that's what the book is about. So, I mean, you've worked in a bunch of these different situations and had a bunch of exposure to it, obviously enough to write a book. Um, so how much of, you know, you said, you know, in an area that's not progressive, um, I would just imagine, this is just my uh, guess, I would just imagine that these teams are, you know, they have the line person and then they have the person that's like elected into that position. And then that's part of this broader jurisdiction that they're in or this broader, you know, area. How does the, um, how does the leadership of that elected person um, affect and drive the actual execution of what's happening on the line? Yeah, well, the leadership sets the priorities, right? It's just like in the corporate space when we, when you hear tone from top, right? Tone from the top is something we focus on so much in the corporation. It's the same thing in the prosecutorial space or any agency for that matter. The leaders or the leader sets the priorities and sets the agenda. So when, in the prosecutorial space, it impacts how line attorneys, trial attorneys make their decisions on their cases. What do they prioritize? Um, oh. and things like that. In the same vein, on the corporate side, um, you know, one of the things that 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 we we may have touched on is is what corps corporations can do better, what organizations can do better. When you focus on the tone from the top and you ignore the middle, right? Yeah, right. You know, have the closest connection to the people on the front line in the field. If, if your company is set up that way, um, you know, when you when you ignore bringing those people in and making sure the tone from the middle is correct, you, there will be gaps, right? You're not going to touch the people who are closest to your customers, etc. Um, so it's the same thing. Leaders set the vision, but you have to include. Um, supervisory folks in the middle, and then our line folks who technically, if, if you, you know, if you, whether it's the field, if it's the prosecutorial space, it's in the courtroom, right? Um, and 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 messaging is just so powerful and so important to all of those spaces. And and what's been so fascinating to me as someone who transitioned from prosecution into compliance is uh, in the, the many parallels between the two spaces. Yeah. And 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 one of the things now that I'm in this uh, global compliance space that I find so interesting is 
so many of the people who end up leading um, government agencies, prosecutorial offices, they come up through the ranks. Um, they, they, they don't have the benefit of working in a space like global compliance, where you are consistently thinking about the bigger, the bigger picture um, and relentless root cause analysis. What would our criminal legal system look like if, if we took the idea of relentless root cause analysis into that space and we stopped just addressing the symptom of the problem, right? Um, the crime and started thinking about what's behind it, the poverty, the, the lack of education, you know, all of these other systemic factors that contribute to why people become entangled in the criminal legal space. So I want you to know that if, when you start hearing me say relentless root cause analysis in the future, there's an implied asterisk crediting you with that because that is <laughs> such a critical piece of everyone's job or the yeah. ones who can really elevate and really, really make that impact. As you've sort of stepped in house, and now you're thinking about that at a, at a deeper level. What are the levers that you're seeing, at least sort of, you know, maybe now or in the in the near future, that you're able to most readily pull to drive the type of behavior change that leads to the type of, you know, integrity-based organization that you're trying to build? What are the levels levers that I'm most readily able to pull? Um, you know, I think the the lever of transparency is such a such a big deal. Um, and when you when you want to change behavior, again, thinking about culture over rules, um, so many companies have policies and you read them and it's like, well, a lawyer wrote this. <laughs> this yeah. doesn't really resonate with me. Um, how do you bring those policies to life? And I think transparency and communication is a big part of bringing policies to life, changing the words that we use to describe compliance culture, right? From reporting, for instance, to speaking up instead, right? It mm -hmm. just kind of changed, especially if you're in a global corporation where reporting has a negative connotation in some place like Russia, right? right. Um, and even in the US, right? <laughs> Criminal legal space snitching is reporting. Yeah. Um, so so how, do you, how do you help people understand that connection between um, speaking up and making the company better, speaking up and innovation? Um, if people feel com comfortable speaking up about an ethics issue, they also feel comfortable speaking up about processes. Exactly. The company. So, you know, it's all connected and that's what I, I love about it and I find so fascinating. And I think, you know, making those connections clear through transparency, um, that is one of the levers that I readily pull upon when I'm communicating with leadership, when I'm communicating with colleagues, when I'm communicating with, um, you know, folks on the front line. I think it, it, transparency is such a big, a big piece of that. Well, and the speak up thing is such an interesting thing because like to your point, people have a bias about snitching and, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm I tell my daughters, don't tell on your sister and stuff, you know, it's like I'm creating, <laughs> I'm embedding a bias in them already. Um, but like, but in the same breath, everybody wants a voice. Everybody wants their voice heard. Everyone wants to feel part of something. And there's this like perpetual, you know, motion or this perpetual uh, motion machine that is our economy and our, our corporations that chew people up and spit them out. And people come into new jobs, jaded and bringing sort of workplace trauma with them that prevents them from engaging or at least being guarded or wearing some sort of carapace of, you know, I don't know, whatever protection um, that makes them be inauthentic and then leads to sort of an inauthentic culture. And it leads to the words on the wall, not being actually lived out and not having a voice and so forth. And piercing that thing, yes. breaking that down allows for so much magic to unleash because I think at our core, we're all kind of red-eyed and bushy-tailed. Everyone wants to work in an organization that's doing good in the world. And I mean, aside from like the 2% of people or maybe five that are like true psychopaths, like everyone <laughs> wants the world to be better. And, you know, 
it's almost like we're scared to have that vision of the future because we don't want to feel stupid or be let down. Like, I mean, I at least was when I first got out of school, I got, you know, I was so excited to like, see how like the real companies did it. And then I saw it and I was like, Duh. I was like, this is a disaster. Like, this is, this is not how the case studies were written. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is crazy. Not um, no, it's not. How do we marry those two things though? Like um, the, the transparency piece and the empowerment that, that we can give to people that as a result, they'll feel more engaged and sort of part of the culture while fighting against the sort of inherent bias they might have against, you know, telling on people or something. Because it's yeah. such a powerful piece, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think you got to think about how you're hiring, who you're hiring, and then how you're training, right? Um, you, you made such a good point about people coming in with trauma and being scarred from the way maybe a prior organization handled a dispute where they felt retaliated against and they, or even if you have a company that's been around for a long time and retaliation may have been a part of the culture, but then you have new people in place who are trying to change it. How do you change it? Well, first communication, right? Um, It starts with a policy and then you bring that policy to life through training and communication, but then you walk the walk, right? You can't say you have a policy against retaliation and you want people to feel comfortable speaking up and then you don't penalize retaliation or you penalize it inconsistently. Um, or, you know, you, you penalize retaliation if it's from someone that, if it's, if it's committed by someone that is of less value, for instance, to the organization than someone who's in an executive position that's influencing the bottom line. No, it has to be consistent. So, you know, it's all of those things. It's the policy, it's bringing it to life through training, communication, it's infiltrating from the top to the middle to the ground of the organization. Um, and it's, and it's walking the, the, the walk and, and, and making sure that you're not just, um, just talking a good game when it comes to so many of these things. I talk to a lot of folks and I think I get this. So that's a great point. It's a phenomenal point. It has to be sort of consistent and it has to be, I think we're talking about authentic. It has to be authentic. It has to be real. It can't just be some word that some lawyer wrote. No offense to lawyers, wink, wink. Uh, But it has to be alive and it has to be lived out every single day. You know, like if you go to a pool and it says no running and then everyone's running, well, not really that that important of a rule. Exactly. Um, so I really nerd out on this stuff because I think it's such a massive opportunity. But this thing that I keep hearing over and over again from folks is like, well, it's hard to change a culture. And like I was on a podcast the other day and we were talking about this Glencore thing, right? There was like massive fraud with Glencore, you know, ridiculous fraud, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, bribes and stuff like this to gain access to basically like strip wealth out of Africa. So uh, that's a whole thing. And the question was like, well, how do you change that culture? And at some level, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know if something can be so rotted out that you just have to like throw out the corpse. But I tend to believe, because again, I'm a bright eyed, bushy tailed kind of a person that like things happen little by little and all at once. And there's a certain sort of emotional or like idea contagion that we can strike fire to and it can light a fire in an organization and people can say, you know what, this is real. And so I just, this to me, this whole culture thing and this engaging our workforce thing, it is like the thing that we're going to see over the next 10 years, I think, as we really do shed these shackles from like the industrial revolution and recognize that people are not automatons, people are not uh, human resources, right? They're not labor units. They're human beings who go home every day and they have ideas and they have gifts. Um, and if we as companies and corporations can unleash those gifts by making them feel part of something, then there's so many like ripple effects and positive externalities that rip out through our, our communities and rip, rip out through our broader culture and stuff like that. So I love ethics and compliance because we're really like the, we're like the tip of the spear at, in, in some ways. So anyways, my rant is pausing. I'm pausing my rant for a moment. Um, talk to me a little bit about investigative work and how you're able to bring your experiences 
on you know, the prosecutorial side into your organization and what opportunities for improvement did you see? And if you don't want to talk about your company, maybe, maybe we can talk about it on a broader scale of like, you know, middle of the bell curve errors that most organizations are probably making on a corporate basis so that people who are listening to this can say, oh, wow, I should try that, you know, tomorrow yeah. at work. Yeah, you know, I think that um, in, in terms of the first part of your question, what I brought in, you do a lot of investigations as a prosecutor. Um, a lot happens before trial. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. this whole grand jury process and that process is all about investigating um, and getting to, you know, getting to the bottom of what happened and, and figuring out whether you're going to move forward with the case or not. So, you know, I think a couple of the things that I brought in that were honestly already here because we, we had strong leadership and compliance when I joined um, my company. Um, but, you know, confidentiality in terms of mm. investigations is almost akin to grand jury secrecy, right? Um, you, you can't have a, a compliance program that's respected if people don't trust that they can report and, you know, their peer won't, you know, won't yeah. find out. Um, so that's such a big part of protecting the program, the integrity of the program, just the investigative process, the investigative techniques that we use. Obviously, we don't have subpoena uh, subpoena power and we can't execute warrants, et cetera, and all that fun stuff. But um, there are other techniques that, that we use to get to the bottom of things and, and we make sure we do it within the bounds of privacy, et cetera. Um, and, 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 you know, I mentioned consistency and discipline before and just the, the general process from the start of an investigation to how we conclude and how discipline and corrective actions are, are determined, very similar um, to how a, an investigation in the criminal space um, might occur. A lot, a lot in what you said, we could probably have a whole webinar on that last <laughs> paragraph uh, that you talked about, but it's such an interesting it's such an interesting piece of our world um, and something that's so affectable and it has such a sort of, I think, like cascading effect across the perception that people have in our organizations as to how real the things, the tone from the top or the policies that are coming out or the trainings or whatever, how real are those things and how much do we actually care about them? Because I think we all have this algorithm that runs in our mind of like, you know, it's like a BS tester, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. we hear a bunch of things and we're like, all right, well, what, you know, what's real and what's not real? And I think that that investigation process is such a, um, an opportunity for organizations to really dial that in. So before we wrap up here, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Let's go back in our time machine to the young Bianca, who's maybe just coming out of law school or maybe just about to go into law school and give her some advice that you wish you had then. That light bulb thing that you're like, oh my gosh, man, if I knew this earlier, yeah. I would be 10 times bigger than I am now or had made change way more lives than I have now. What is that piece? Be yourself, be your authentic self. Um, you have a unique style that no one can replicate and that is your superpower. Take that with you into every space that you enter and you will be unstoppable. I feel like you were just telling that to me. So thank you for that advice. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, if you have two more minutes, I want to just hear, let's now let's go, let's change that dial on that uh, time machine and let's go forward 10 years. How is our world different? How are our workplaces different? How has the work that you've done and others like you that are fighting the same battle uh, changed change the landscape yeah. of the world we're living in? You know, I think that a, a, a big change that we should hope to see is that we've figured out uh, how to navigate that line between bringing your authentic self to work while also embracing the authenticity and the differences. Of right. Others. 
I think sometimes what happens is people think, what you know, you told me I can bring my authentic self to work. That means I can say whatever I want. I, you know, can spew all my, my ideologies and views. Doesn't matter who I insult, right? Because I get to bring my full self to work, but they don't understand that that requires navigating this line of, of respect, right? Mutual respect of psychological safety, of creating a space of belonging for others. So I would hope that in 10 years, just as a society, um, because we are all, you know, just part of a society of employees that are spread out across a number of organizations. Um, I would hope that we would have a more uh, fundamental understanding and appreciation of how to navigate those those two realities without running afoul of the line. There's a there's a book in there. There's another book in there. <laughs> I think we just came up with your next book. All right. Um, where can people find you, Bianca? This was a, this was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Bianca M. Ford. Um, I, I believe you can find me if I just type that in Google. My LinkedIn is the first thing that comes up. Um, and because you're the I, Bianca, because I'm the Bianca, Bianca Ford. Ford, right? That's like, right. Yeah, one. No one else <laughs> like me, right? Um, yeah, LinkedIn. Like cool. I, I got an Instagram, but it's private, so I'm gonna keep that to myself. Keep that to yourself. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, uh, thank you so much. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No. If you're interested in, in more about the book, it's at Prosecuted Prosecutor on Instagram. Um, and the pay equity app I mentioned is the equity app um, on Instagram as well. Oh, we didn't even talk about the app. Okay. Well, we'll have, we'll have to, to reconnect. A new for that. What's that? <laughs> we'll have to schedule a We'll follow. have to. Yeah, exactly. A part two. Uh, well, this was so much fun. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time. Bye.